welcome in uh, to Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Professor Burgess, along with my colleague, Professor Bussey, uh, handing out degrees in common Hola. sense. That, of course, now, Bubba, a superpower. American history. Uh, revisionists have been, unfortunately, pretty successful uh, in revising American history. And if we don't know the genuine article, then we're going to have a generation of Americans that don't know that they're there's been any revisionists that has taken place or revising because they don't know what actually happened. But then we have our guest, Ali Habib, uh, who is trying to do his part, host and founder of Our American Stories. This is a, uh, a storytelling um, a radon and podcast featuring stories that represent the best uh, in American history. Bubby does sports, music, uh, enterprise, charity, faith, family, and more. Uh, he's been uh, doing essays for Newsweek on American life. Uh, and uh, and we are fired up about having him on right now. So, Lee Habib, welcome to Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's our honor and pleasure, Lee. You're very well known. We're honored to have you on. Did did the setup work? I mean, isn't that uh, the the passion behind all this? Uh, we well, ha- it was always my passion. Yeah, uh, the country's always been my passion. I had I had grandparents who came from Lebanon and from Sicily, and they would take me to Ellis Island every year. They would watch, make me watch induction ceremonies of other immigrants who, by the way, came in legally, who had to take the citizenship oath and test. By the way, watching immigrants take the oath of allegiance to this day is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of weeping. There's a lot of crying. And uh, so my grandparents just love the country. They love the opportunity. When they would see the flag, they practically salute it. When they would hear God Bless America, they would cry. They would cry when they heard that song. So it was a real thing for me. It was a visceral thing. I was connected to the generation that came here. Too many kids aren't connected to that generation of parents, regrettably. And then they get no real heritage stories, even in their own family, of of their own history, let alone the history of their country. So what happens is then we send our children off to uh, places like uh, government schools and <laughs> off to government colleges, and then they're indoctrinated in a version of American history, as I said in your introduction, they can't refute because they, they haven't heard the actual history of the country. And though it is true our country has had some ups and downs, it seems now instead of presenting an equal balance, we're casting America like your parents and your grandparents should have been crying when they heard God bless America because how evil America is. Well, you know, what's interesting. One of the interesting stories we did was a a guy named Louisa Lim. He's a historian, a Chinese historian, an American citizen. He went to China with a picture of Tank Man. You know, remember the guy in Tiananmen Square facing in front of the tanks with two shopping bags in his hand? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he showed it to like a thousand students. 90% of them, he was sure, 90% of them didn't recognize it. He was sure that 10% did, but were afraid to say anything because it might have been some kind of a stunt from the Chinese Communist Party. His point was that China was erasing the bad parts of its history and only promoting the good. He then said what was happening in America was the opposite. We were promoting the bad stuff, but none of the good. And I thought that was fascinating. And there are some bad sequences in American history, no question, because no country's perfect, no person's perfect. By the way, at a 25th anniversary of your of wedding and, and, your, and your marriage, you're not going to sit there and simply recount 
an infidelity or a problem in the marriage, you're going to celebrate the good stuff knowing you overcame the bad stuff. So what we wanted to do in this show is make it be a celebration, not forgetting the bad stuff, but showing and telling stories of overcoming from race stories to music stories to business stories. And by the way, the greatest underdog story of them all, us winning the Revolutionary War. If there was a Las Vegas then and there were odds makers in the desert, uh, they wouldn't have had a line on whether America could be the, the mighty power of, of, of England and London and the mighty naval power. They wouldn't have had a morning line. That's how preposterous the idea was that we would get a divorce from a king and self-govern. It was crazy. It, well, it really yeah, was. Yeah. And uh, you, you make a great point on it. I mean, people just don't realize the history and they don't appreciate it. And you know, you have to wait the good with the bad, and and that, that's the problem of it. But, I, Lee, I think the real attribute to look at in this, because everybody does have bad, are the ones that correct it and, right. and move forward. Yeah, No doubt. And by the way, when we think about history, look, part of it's our own fault. You know, we rely on the government schools or the public schools or the colleges to tell the story of America to Americans. That's our job. We should have been on the schools. We should have been visiting the school boards. My dad was a superintendent of schools. And right up till the 1990s, as he would tell anybody who would care to listen, they tried to teach American history and did a pretty decent job of it. What was happening over time is that it was getting pushed out of the curriculum for something called social studies, world studies, geography, for skills, drill and kill stuff, just math and English. So the degree to which we value history is represented in the amount of time we spend with our own children talking about American history. Right. Nothing stops us from sitting down with our children and saying these following words, once upon a time, and then bring them back to what it must have been like being George Washington without knowing what was going to happen. Because I think this is the most important part of our show, is we try and we present stories with brilliant storytellers. There are no interviews. It's just the storyteller. David McCullough from the grave, Stephen Ambrose from the grave. We have remarkable deals with their estates, one pending, one through. And they, what their gift was, was bringing you back in the time, not knowing what was going to happen. Because George Washington didn't know what was going to happen when he stared out into Brooklyn Harbor, looking at an armada of British naval ships any more than Ike had any idea what was going to happen when he sent 165,000 of our boys to land on Normandy. Nobody knew what was going to happen. You have to bring a kid back, bring a student back to that excitement, to that uncertainty, the risks people took with their lives. We've regrettably taught history through dates, through a sense of our own propaganda. America's perfect. George Washington never lied. Well, that was boring history, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and look, we were old enough to like be in American history classes that bored us to death. So we have to take some ownership for this problem. And then if we take ownership for the problem, we actually can own the solution, which is we're allowed to teach our own kids and our neighbor's kids, our friends at church. We're allowed to tell these stories to one another. So you're doing the radio show, you're doing the podcast. So well, here's what I want to know. How has the response been? Because we're talking about why this is important, right. and I don't think there's anybody that can dispute that. It is important, but is there an audience for it? Does anybody care? And, and so how is it going so far? Oh, my goodness. We started in 2016 with one affiliate. We were independently syndicated. The next thing you know, we're on like 250 stations. 
stations and not little ones. iHeart's KTRH, iHeart's WHO, big Los Angeles stations. And we're getting ratings everywhere. In Des Moines, we're at 13 shares now. Wow. Because we're not telling boring history stories. And we're not just looking at history as like 300 years ago. We tell the story of Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey and their faith walk and what it was like to do what they did. We tell the story of songs. The story of George on my mind is an amazing story. Irving Berlin's story, Duke Ellington's story, Dale Earnhardt's story, Henry Ford's. In other words, make the show as representative and exciting as the country is, as big and bold and beautiful as the country is. We also have lots of listeners' stories telling the story of their own family history. We have one guy, Jay Moore, who's the official historian of a little town in Texas who, who he draws 800 people to a theater there every year to tell the stories. It's not such a little town, Abilene, Texas, compared to, let's say, Dallas or Houston. But Jay's done a dozen stories for us about the stories of Abilene. They're beautiful, sacrifice, heroism, generosity. So the question isn't, is there an audience for a show about American life? The question is, is there room for a great show? on this. You know, there were a lot of Godfather movies. We did a story about the making of The Godfather and how it almost didn't come to be. It turns out while Paramount is preparing to make The Godfather and it's hired this sort of young director, Francis Ford Coppola, who's hiring like a, a young actors like, well, Al Pacino, who no one wanted. It turns out that a new mafia movie had come out with Kirk Douglas and it was a failure. And it was the third straight failure as it related to mafia film. So Paramount wanted to cut The Godfather. The problem wasn't that the, 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 the Godfather and mafia films failed. It's that they were bad mafia movies, right? <laughs> they were bad mafia movies. Westerns didn't die. What Clint Eastwood proved with Unforgiven is that good Westerns would succeed. And, and my goodness, what we've learned from Yellowstone in 1883 and 1923 are that these the stories about American life are, are, are watched only as it relates to how good the storytelling is. So I think in large measure, simply telling sort of jingoistic stories about American history, right? No flaws, no problems, no worries, perfect people. A lot of Christian stories suffer from this too. I was, I was yeah. a sinner, I met Jesus, now my life's fine. What a load of rubbish, right? right. <laughs> uh, it, it's better. Um, I'm on the road to becoming a better person, but it's one day at a time. Sometimes I'm closer to God. Sometimes I slip away. We have to tell the truth. The other side lies, right? They lie, but we can't lie too. And so if we tell the truth, don't put a thumb on the scale. If we tell the story of the union movement in the early 20th century, which was done by progressives, but we tell it right, it was solving a problem. Now the unions have gone too far, but we've got to give the union some credit at some time for some of the work they did at the time they did it. It's a remarkable story. Same with the suffragette movie movement. A lot of those women were progressives, but yet that the move to get the right to vote for women was of paramount importance to the country, as important as it was for the rights of blacks to vote. So we, we I think in the past, conservatives brushed over some of the bad. We were antiseptic in our treatment of the founding fathers, some of whom were Enlightenment guys. They weren't all Christian guys. They loved Christianity. They respected it. But calling Jefferson a Christian, no. it's, well, I went to UVA Law School. 
He had his own Bible and he ripped yeah. out all the parts he didn't like. Right. He was a unique character, Jefferson. We have to tell the story of these people in whole, George Washington in whole, not just the parts we like. And well, I think this is what the great historians do, the David McCulloughs, the Stephen Ambroses. These yeah. weren't perfect young men that went off to fight in Normandy. They were you and I, if we were around in 1944, because we would have gone. Young boys went, they volunteered, they ran into harm harm's way in 1944, COVID hits, and our kids are stuck in basements when there was no harm uh, that was about to be done to them. And then we get to think about generationally, wow, what's changed? We sent our kids off to possibly die. Now we're hiding our kids in the basement, even though they have almost no chance of being killed by this disease. What happened to our country? I think that's what great storytelling can elicit. Um, we walk into the stories and we see ourselves and then we compare ourselves to other generations. What are we getting right? What are we getting better? What are we getting worse? How have we improved? On what on what margins have we failed? I think that's what great storytelling does in the end. It inspires, but it also makes us reflect and ponder about what we could do better. That's what the Bible does. I mean, it's all stories. And, and we walk into these stories and see ourselves. And sometimes we don't like what we see, right? right, right. And sometimes we do. Right. But always there's that story as an anchor for our lives, some truth around which we can frame our lives. And I think that's what history does, too. Our AmericanStories.com is the website to find out more. Lee Habib is our guest, and we'll continue our conversation when Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, continues right after this. This is the Rick and Bubba Show. Watch more at BlazeTV.com slash Rick and Bubba. Rick and Bubba, Rick and Bubba. Lee Habib is our guest. Uh, OurAmericanStories.com is the website. Our American Stories is his show. It's on radio and podcast. Uh, and we're unpacking, uh, you know, some of the things that he talks about. And, and Bubba, once again, he's making the point. Our history is quite interesting. We can learn a lot from it, but we got to tell it like it really happened. Lee, you you cover a lot of topics uh, that that we love. Also, uh, I, I noticed one of them that that you have covered is the war inside Ben Franklin's home. Yeah, uh, you know we we know about Ben Franklin, but I I'm not really even privy on a lot of that. And I I consider myself somewhat of a historian. I enjoy history, uh, but tell us a little bit about Ben. Sure. Again, and we by the way we put this piece out because routinely I hear these words from folks. The country's never been more divided. Right, <laughs> and right. To which I say, what a load of rubbish. The country's been much more divided. Right. Yeah, we were actually shooting states. at each other one time. Yeah. Right. We were shooting and killing each other. Guys who went to West Point together were killing each other. Yeah. Right? right. So so Benjamin Franklin is one of our great founders, a man of science, a man of letters, um, and, and, and a wise man, and one folks lived up to. He had an illegitimate child. And by the way, back then, no one raised their illegitimate child. They sent them off to a, a rectory, to a, to, a, to, a, to, a, to a foster space, and, and, and someone else raised them. Not Ben Franklin. He raised William. He was close to William. He loved William. And they, they spent time together in London. His son was highly trained. When his son finally settles in America, his father gets him the royal governorship of New Jersey. So he's working for the crown. And here's Ben Franklin about to assign to Thomas Jefferson the, the greatest writing commission of all time to write the Declaration of Independence. And so Ben Franklin is essentially at a battle ideologically with his son. His son is saying to his dad, dad, don't do it. Don't do this. 
You'll be committing a high crime of treason if you if you author this, if you sign your name to it. Um, you're declaring war on the king, the king of England, <laughs> and he won't like it. No. Don't do it. And I, he's got a military. I, I don't have your back. And interestingly enough, Ben Franklin's saying the same thing to his son. Son, I, I can't have your back. You've got to resign your, your crown commission. You have to do it. I can't protect you. Well, what do you know? Ben Franklin signs the declaration. He gets his son arrested, throws his son into the Litchfield gal for two years, along with other royal governors, and in the end, never to speak to his son again. I have to read you the last words he ever said to his son, because many years later, his son living in England, broken, writes to his dad, can we get together? Ben Franklin's only a few years from dying. And here's Ben Franklin's written response to his son. He's in London. He's only a few miles from the son he raised and hadn't spoken to in decades. Here's what he wrote. Nothing, son, has hurt me so much and affected me with such keen sensation as to find myself deserted in my old age by my only son. And not only deserted, but to find him taking up arms against me in a cause wherein my good fame, fortune, and life were at stake. Wow. They would never communicate again, guys. Mm -hmm. a, few a few years later, Ben Franklin died. And by the way, the country was this divided. One third before the war. One third were saying, oh, just give England a little bit more. They're going to protect us from the French and the Spanish. They'll fight wars for us. We don't want to fight them. And then one third were hiding under their table, hoping it would settle. And that's America still today. We're fighting over a distant power. The distant power used to be London and Parliament. Now the distant power is Washington, D.C., the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization. We're still fighting over sovereignty. We're still fighting over issues of God. We're still fighting over issues of who pays and who, who doesn't and who decides. And so these, these battles in America we found recur over and over, rural versus city, rural versus city. That's still happening today. You know, when you think about the complicated character, as, as a, lot, a lot of our founding fathers were, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson. Ben Franklin, it's a little different case. I agree with you. You can't make a case that Thomas Jefferson was a Christian. You can make the case that he liked the ideals of Christianity and had no issue living in a society based on them. But uh, he was very clear on that. But, um, but Franklin, a little more complicated. And, you know, I remember when I went to where he was buried— I took note that he is actually buried in a cemetery of a Christian church, but then he's often been you know, portrayed as a deist at best. What do you know about him as far as faith? I think he vacillated like Lincoln did. Yeah. Um, and, and it came and it went. But one thing he had was tremendous respect for the idea of a creator, right? Um, and, 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 and did not have disregard for Christians, understanding what, look, in the end, you know, the, the man who authored The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, also wrote another book. It was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. So if people who aren't a godly people, who don't answer to a higher power and a moral power, how do we govern ourselves? How do we govern ourselves but for this idea of God? So I think that both Lincoln's uh, uh, walk, we're doing a piece with Alan Quelzo, the great Alan Quelzo, uh, next week on this very subject of Lincoln loving the idea of God, loving uh, the, the Christian God, but yet never being a member of a church his whole life. Not really. 
And uh, and yet praying, finding himself during the Civil War, praying more than he'd ever prayed before, having dreams that he never thought he'd have before, having premonitions and knowing they came from a from a place divine, and always understanding the divine spark of man. So this idea of nihilism or progressivism or uh, anything like it or cynicism wasn't born into the DNA of America. Most of it came from our Christian ethos, Judeo-Christian values, vast majority of Americans were practicing Christians. Those that weren't had regard for it, understood that it's impossible for America to be America without it. Lee, President Lincoln uh, is uh, one of my favorites, too. Very complicated. I know you have other stories about him. Uh, When I was in D.C., I went to Ford's Theater, one of my favorite tours, and got to stand right there where John Wilkes Booth looked through the door, Mm. where Lincoln was shot, where he was carried across the street. Uh, it's, it's just unbelievable when you actually see that, that history come to life. But, uh, I, I know he's one of your favorites too. Yeah. And we have a Ford reenactor, the reenactor at the Ford theater does a reenactment of the last day of Abraham Lincoln's life. And we call it the short, happy life of Abraham Lincoln, because Lincoln had, had been a, a sort of a melancholic person his whole life. He he had a tendency towards the melancholy, which many historians believe preserved him. I mean, how better to be able to withstand all of that grief if you didn't know grief, right? right? right. And and so it served him in the Civil War, but it also crushed him. So on this last day of his life, by the way, Good Friday, Good Friday, April 14, 1865. In the morning, he wakes up after the greatest celebration in the history of Washington, D.C., called the Grand Illumination. The war was over. Lee had surrendered. Richmond fell. Can you imagine the celebration in Washington? Fireworks, again, it's called the Grand Illumination. Wakes up in the morning, visits his staff, the war staff, for the last time. General Grant is in the room with him for the first time in years. And it's a happy moment. But Grant, Grant tells the story of Lincoln doing something ominous. He told the cabinet about a dream he had Mm. and the one that he'd had many times during the war. He was the head of a mysterious vessel moving towards a distant shore, and he was alone. Lincoln then told his staff that when he had that dream, something of critical importance always followed. He said, quote, I'm convinced something of major significance is about to happen again. After that, he goes out on a beautiful spring day with his wife, and they take a carriage ride. And his wife notes that for the first time in the longest time, her husband and she are happy. They lost their son, Willie, in the White House. Heck, they watched 600,000 people die. First day of light, Lincoln's talking about life as a lawyer in Springfield after he finishes his second term. He talks about going to the Pacific with his wife. That night, they go to see a comedy at Ford Theater, not just a play, Uh a comedy. When he arrives at the theater, Everything stops. Thunderous applause. Hail to the chief is played. The best day of his life goes up to the booth. One of the most famous actors of his day is going into the booth, but not to greet him. He's going there to kill him. Mm. And he does. He blows off a piece of Lincoln's head, jumps onto the stage, no mask. He's looking at the crowd. The crowd's looking at him. They know who he is. And he says, sink Semper Tyrannis. And he races off thinking he'll be immortalized as a hero in the South. Lincoln's body gets carried down across the street. There's a little place where they can lay his head. The next morning, everything turns dour. 
Lincoln dies, a fog goes over the great city of Washington, a light mist forms, and as one commentator said, it was as if tears were dropping down from heaven to mourn the great emancipator. And so these are tragic stories, right? Yeah. That's not a happy story. It doesn't have a happy ending. A price was paid, a life was lost. There were, there were, there were prices we've all uh, not paid, most American citizens, for the inheritance we have. This is a point David McCullough made on one of the very last uh, speeches he ever gave, one that we've luckily been blessed to have. He, he tells the story about how uh, we have this inheritance, but we've done nothing to earn it, and it's easy to squander. It's like that third generation rich yeah, kid. Yeah, right? we all know that He doesn't know how guy. the wealth was made, yeah. and he just tosses it away. And he worried that we Americans weren't telling these stories to one another. And uh, so that's why, and the, I, I can only promise you, and I don't know why, but my goodness, this is one of the most, we play this story every year on that day. We've been playing it for four years, and each year more and more people watch it and we'll, listen to it. We'll come wow. back. We'll continue this fascinating conversation with our guest, Lee Habib. When Rick and Bubba University, the podcast continues right after this. So Bubba, talking about patriots and patriotism, good time to talk about Patriot Mobile, uh, has been America's only Christian conservative wireless provider, the only one. Trust us on that one. Uh, look, they're great supporters of what we do, and we're thankful for that. We love partnering with them. We're very proud of that. Uh, they offer dependable nationwide coverage, giving you the ability to access all three major networks. So I, I bet a lot of folks are happy about that right now, <laughs> yeah. that they can go to one that's actually working, which means you get the same coverage you've been accustomed to without funding anything on the left. Uh, when you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're sending the message. Hey, I support free speech, religious freedom, the sanctity of life, Second Amendment, military veterans, uh, our first responders, those who are currently serving us in the military. It's a 100% U.S.-based customer service team, and boy, do they make switching easy. So you can keep your number if you want to, keep the phone if you want to, upgrade if that's what you want to do, they can do that too. Uh, their team will help you find the best plan that works for you. This is one of those rare cases where you actually do have a choice. You can have great service without funding something you disagree with. If you want free activation, use the offer code Rick Bubba, and they'll take they'll take care of that. Go to patriotmobile.com slash Rick Bubba, or you can call them and mention Rick Bubba at 972-PATRIOT. Uh, join uh, so many of those in the Rick and Bubba audience and make the switch today to Patriot Mobile. Our guest is Lee Habib. Uh, OurAmericanStories.com is the website. The show is Our American Stories. He's the host and the founder. Uh, it's on radio stations all over the country. It's in podcast form. Uh, you can get that and find all that by going to that website. Uh, and he's telling us just a few of the fascinating stories that are continually and constantly uh, on the show. Uh, so you, you mentioned Lincoln. Um, yeah, I, no, I noticed you had mentioned Lincoln's first day. I'm yeah, not familiar with that. Yeah, well, and, and you know, he is a fascinating uh, a man, no doubt about it. You've given us his last day. Uh, but, um, but you were talking about other things involving him as well, and, and that's, uh, that's the first day. Well, his first day was harrowing. He had to get to Washington, D.C., and he wasn't elected by any kind of a wild majority. Right. And, and, and to study how he got elected is something we spend an, an entire 40 minutes on his first day because it's actually the 13 days leading to his first day. He has to get from Springfield to Washington, D.C., and there are several assassination plots he has to avoid. So he hires 
and the government hires the Pinkertons, and they're running separate trains, <laughs> especially, and you would think, oh, New York's going to be safe. There were a lot of people in New York who were not happy with Lincoln. They thought it would lead to war. They just wanted the cotton. They wanted the country to stay together. The idea that everyone in the North was for the war, uh, against the war, and everybody in the South was for the war is just not true, right? And and it's complicated. And there were a lot of financial interests in New York and a lot of folks who just had kids who were like, let the South secede. We just want the cotton. We believe in states' rights. If they want to leave, they leave. That was part of what Jefferson wrote about in the in the in the Declaration of Independence, for goodness sake. Um, by the way, there were many Northerners who didn't want to fight, uh, but it was complicated. So Lincoln's first day in the story, the harrowing story of how he got to D.C. and how he had worried that he would never get there. He didn't pack his bags too heavily. He worried that he'd be murdered before he got to Washington, D.C., wow. particularly in Baltimore. Um, he narrowly escaped death there. There was a serious assassination attempt in Baltimore. It was above the Mason-Dixon line, Baltimore, um, but it was a slave city. And, and so it was an interesting place, Baltimore. Washington, D.C. was also a slave city. And uh, there were a lot of people there who thought Lincoln was going to try and end slavery. So they wanted to end him. So you, your stories, and I think why it's so important, and we talk about this sometimes on our show, Americans, for some reason, especially especially modern day, they want every story to be like a fictional sitcom. This is clearly the bad guy. This mm-hmm. is clearly the good people. <laughs> this is clearly the resolution. And nothing is complicated. But our history, as you just said, is quite complicated. And the Civil War is one of those where, if you want the sitcom version, Southern people are wicked. They wanted slaves, and they wanted to keep people enslaved. Uh, and the Union people are wonderful human beings that uh, that did not want that to happen, and they stood up for the plight of African people, and that's the reason why Northern people are good and Southern people are bad. Uh, but the Civil War, first of all, terribly misnamed. Uh, it, it was not a civil war. <laughs> war uh, failed independence. It, it was a an attempt at, <laughs> at independence that was denied. Yep. Uh, uh, they weren't going to replace the government in Washington. They wanted to secede, as you mentioned. The Civil War, uh, what do we need to do to correctly? Uh, was it Ben Carson? I can't remember who said, if you say the Civil War was all about slavery, that's wrong. If you say the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery, that's also wrong. Is that a fair right. statement? I think that's a very fair statement. I do think that in the end, the question that I don't think that the question of historians that I love ask, and 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 Larry Arn asks it the best. He's the president of Hillsdale College, and he says to audiences, "Why did sixty of my boys decide to leave Hillsdale College and fight? They did it voluntarily." Frederick Douglass had come here many times to speak. By the way, they were all Christian boys, and they were abolitionists. They believed. They were willing to sacrifice their lives in good honor. They had a bunch of Medal of Honor winners from Hillsdale. So I always want to get down to that. Why did the core of the core of many of those Northerners fight? The ones that fought, the volunteers. And you will see in letters after letters from those young men, Christians mostly, that a man should not own another man. Right. And by the way, it was Christians who ended abolition. This is the core of the story, right? Right, right. Wilberforce in England, we tell his story. Oh, yeah. We have to, because it's inextricable from the abolitionist story here in America, which was a Christian story. Heck, Martin Luther King was a Christian. He was a reverend, and his doctorate was not 
Well, let's just put it this way. He never took out anyone's appendix, Dr. King. Right. Um, he was inspired by the Bible. And he did, yes, drift to the left later in his life. But my goodness, what he did in 1963, we tell the story of the fight for America's soul, and particularly Black folk's soul, between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Malcolm X called, essentially called Martin Luther King and Uncle Tom. Yep. And, and yet Martin Luther King's vision was a Christian vision. And, and a deeply Christian vision, how he, how he proceeded, how he marched, how the dignity with which he marched, as opposed to what uh, Malcolm X was calling for in 1963, which is basically, we were white devils. Right. And, and Martin Luther King said, that's rubbish. They're sinners. We're sinners. And let's make this country more beautiful. Let's make, let's make the Declaration of Independence complete. Martin Luther King's speech on the Declaration of Independence is yeah. spectacular. Yeah. He calls it the greatest sociopolitical document of all time. And he was marching to give full fruition and full rights to the African-Americans in the South yeah. because of segregation. Well, Look, I live in the South. I love the South. Yeah. But the South has sins. Sure. I lived in the North. And oh, my goodness, there was segregation all over the place in the North when I grew up. All the black, Most of the black people lived in cities like Newark and Jersey City and Camden. Race is a stain in this country's history. And it ran late. It ran into the 70s and all over the country. Go to L.A. in the 1970s, and, and Watts was burning in the late 60s. Newark was burning. Boston was burning. Detroit was burning. We didn't treat African Americans properly in this country, and that wasn't just the Civil War. That was right through the 1960s and 70s, and that's just a fact, and this infuriates some conservatives, and I don't care right? because it's true. No, no question, and I think the bigger point, and we've made this on the show, you pointed out about our country and and the Christian values, whether they truly thought it was, you know, it had deity or not. They thought it was a good thing. What if Dr. King could not point to the Declaration of Independence and say, now, wait a minute, y'all are hypocrites. Y'all are claiming that God made us all equal. You're claiming that this is supposed to be a place where all of us can maximize our potential by allowing us maximum liberty you aren't living what you claim to be. What if we'd never claimed to be that? Well, this is the point, right? Yeah, Lincoln's right. greatest speech is not the Gettysburg Address, which we do a show on. It's actually the Cooper Union speech. And he focuses on the word all in the Declaration of Independence deeply. He also focuses on how the Constitution was made and why the compromise had to be. But that quickly, we did this thing called the Northwest Ordinance. And this is George Washington, is one of his great achievements, right? And Jefferson's, in a sense. And that is that slavery was outlawed in the Northwest Territories. So America was trying to solve this problem, but it was hard. And by the way, the rest of the world had slavery. Absolutely. So you always have to tell these stories in conflict. Africans enslaved people, the Chinese enslaved people, the Russians, the word Slav and slavery comes from Russia, right? And, and, and so slavery was something the world was working on, particularly as we move from an agra a deeply agrarian society to a more industrial society. And so these are what, what are interesting points to make, not with the people all good or bad in the 18th century or even in the 20th, but that we're all a mixture of good and bad. And if we're Christians, we have to believe that we're a mixture of good and bad. All of us. Uh, there's only one perfect one, yep. um, and it ain't us, any of us. <laughs> so that's the joy. And what we really love to do in these stories, as we're telling us, for all these heavy stories, we love to tell the story about how moonshining led to NASCAR, how Dale Earnhardt <laughs> followed in his father's footsteps to lead this remarkable career, and how he died on the track in 2001 
not being the intimidator. Right. In this particular case, Dale Earnhardt is running third. Michael Waltrip and his son are first and second. In the final lap, Dale Earnhardt is not playing the role of intimidator. He's playing the role of protector. He's trying to get in front of the other cars and not allow them to pass. That's how he gets bumped. That's how he dies. He dies being the protector, not the intimidator. And of course, we tell that story with the guy who wrote Earnhardt Nation, and it's a spectacular and beautiful story. And he's a complicated guy because we're all complicated. But my goodness, in the end, we celebrate what's good about the guy. We recognize what's not so good. And hopefully in all of our marriages, we celebrate what's good and we tolerate what's not so good about our mates. That's life. That's everyday life, right, guys? It's everyday life. Yep, yep. I think you just directly quoted our wives. We'll be back, ouramericanstories.com, to find out more. Lee Habib's our guest, and we'll return uh, after we take a break on Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. All right, so Bubba, it's not a fun topic, life insurance. Nobody likes it. It it has to happen. Sure would like it to be simplified. Well, good. If you're like us and you want it simplified, then we will do that for you now. Ladderlife.com slash Rick Bubba. Nothing could be simpler. We just want to know, will our family get their check if we pass before them? And Ladder says yes. As a matter of fact, if you want $3 million in coverage or less, you don't even have to see a doctor. You don't need any needles. You don't need paperwork. Uh, just answer a few questions about your health and an application. Uh, Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot. They made the Forbes Best Life Insurance list. Uh, you just need a few minutes and a phone or, or a laptop to apply, and then their smart algorithms will work in real time to find out if you're instantly approved. I like the sound, instantly approved. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime. Get a full refund if you change your mind in the first 30 days. The policies are issued by insurers with long-proven histories of paying claims. So if you want to find out more, finally, life insurance costs more as you age. Now's the time to cross this off the list. L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash Rick Bubba. Get instantly approved. Ladderlife.com slash Rick Bubba. Lee Habib is our guest. Uh, Our American Stories is the radio show and podcast. The website's OurAmericanStories.com, and we've gone through some good ones, but we're barely scratching the surface. Boy, I tell you, Lee, we could spend all day talking some of these stories with you because you've got a lot of in-depth to it. I, I wanted to ask you, did did uh, back to Lincoln again for just a minute, Did do you think he had any regret as to what he had to do to win the war? Uh, obviously, uh, Grant and, and Sherman is probably more documented by today's standards would be war criminals, but they did what they had to do to end the war. Do you think he regretted that at any point? I think the war weighed on him continually. I think he both had regrets and hopes. And like anyone trying to prosecute a war like this and knowing how what kind of carnage there would be and wondering whether there was another way to do it, right? Really great leaders are always wondering, good men are always wondering, could I have done this differently? Did it have to be war? And I think he had come to the conclusion, yes, but you know, in the back of his mind, almost everybody who wrote about Lincoln wrote about the weight of the war. Well, why would there be a weight of, of, of the war if a part of it wasn't that, yeah, right? Yeah. I don't know that the weight uh, for the folks prosecuting the war against the Nazis was as heavy, right? Because we knew this was the only way. There was not another way. 
right? We had to take Berlin or Berlin was going to take all of Europe. It was unacceptable. Um, and, 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 and then the same with the same with Japan. We had to do it. But I think today, even look, Israel is prosecuting in Gaza. It's got to go all the way. Right. That's how they feel. Right. But yet as they're doing it, there's a cost. Right. And if you're a human being and you're a good human being, that has to weigh on you, even if you think it's the right thing to do. Right. And by the way, it doesn't weigh on Hamas at all. And that's the difference between monsters and good people. Yeah, I was talking with some friends of ours who live in Israel, and they say, I don't know why anyone is never, the people are not pointing out that we have the domes protecting the Israeli people. Our government has done everything to protect us from rockets. The Iron Dome. The Iron Dome yep. and all of it's done. They said, has anyone brought up the point that if you go look in Gaza, Hamas hasn't provided those for anyone? Uh, they don't care about their people. Uh, they will sacrifice their people as long as they can kill Israelis uh, or, or you know, capture them. And, and I thought, you know what? That's never really been pointed out. Uh, you know, there, there's no concern there. So you're right. But all of us, you know, even as we were told by our Lord and Savior, we got to count the cost. And there, there always is a cost. Uh, but uh, you have to make the decision sometimes that it's worth the cost. Indeed, indeed. And, and you know, and, and why we fight is so we can tell stories like Georgia on My Mind, which is one of my favorites. Yeah, tell it's us story that. of a song. Yeah, tell us that. And, and it's a beauty. Um, Hoagie Carmichael writes it with his pal, Stuart Gorell. Hoagie's born in 1899. His sister dies of Spanish influenza. This is the thing that changes his life because they were poor. And he said, if, if our family had more money, maybe she could have had medical care. Maybe she would have lived. He becomes a lawyer. He's going to practice law. But he has this talent for writing melodies. And his buddy, Stuart Gorell, writes the lyrics. Hoagie writes the, uh, the melody for Georgia on My Mind. And they shop it around. And there are really no buyers. It's not a hit. Uh, it lays in the drawer for 30 years. And he has many other hits, Hoagie. He writes some of America's songbooks, a great standards. By the way, Stuart Gorell, those were the only lyrics he ever wrote. He became a banker. So interesting part of the story. So Hoagie's, you know, Hoagie's music is not interesting anymore to a young public. Rock and roll is happening. The blues are happening. And this young guy named Ray Charles is tired of being in Atlantic Records. He's tired of, of what he calls making just black music to black folks. He wants to record some of the great standards. He wants to record George on My Mind. He switches labels, goes to ABC Paramount, and does a remarkable record. By the way, his first two records, one's just standards. Then the next record, Genius Hits the Road is the standards. Then his next record is, is, is his recording of his favorite country songs. And so you're watching the, the races come together. Hokie Carmichael never met this blind black guy for, who was born in Georgia. But yet, through the miracle of intellectual property, through the miracle of American arts, uh, Ray Charles records the song, tours forever with it, always the, the favorite song of the fans, voted in the top 50 songs of all time. And this is a Midwestern white guy, a blind black guy who never met, but through the miracles of free enterprise, the miracles of intellectual property rights, not only made both men richer, but made the country richer and more beautiful. It's a story about racial tolerance. It's a story about so much, how we live in this country how we love in this country. That's not told enough stories like this. And they inspire people. And, and by the way, the good news is they're true. Think about this. Eddie Arnold's recorded Georgia on my mind. 
Billy Holiday, Bing Crosby, Michael Bolton, Michael Buble, Ella Fitzgerald, <laughs> Leon Russell, Jackie Wilson, Jerry Garcia, Tom Jones, James Brown, and the Zach Brown Band. All of them recorded. Everybody remembers just one version, right? Ray Charles. Oh yeah, when you when you ran that list right then, <laughs> I, all I thought was maybe I've heard that. But when you say Ray Charles, no one says, "Oh no, I've never I've never heard that before." And right? and and there's so many stories that something that well known at one time was disregarded as worth nothing. Yep, no doubt. Crazy. You know the song "There Goes My Life" was the most powerful of almost any story we ever did. Uh, uh, people just wept when they heard the story. It's a great Kenny Chesney song, right? It was the ba- the party boys ballad. The ballad that if you've gone to a Kenny Chesney show, stops the show. And if you remember, if you've seen the video, it's about you know a young couple who find out they got pregnant before they were married and decided to keep the child. Right. If you remember in the first part of that song, it's There Goes My Life, like our life is ruined. By the second part, as he's seeing the little girl going up the stairs, it's like, wow, my life, that is my life. That little girl's my life. And then, of course, he sends her off to college. There goes my life. But each chorus meaning something different. Well, the two writers of that song were sitting on a on a patio one day, and they'd known each other for about 15 years. And on this particular day, one of the guys says to the other, hey, you okay? You look very sad today. And he confesses to his buddy that his daughter would have been 16. And he says, you had a daughter? He says, oh, yeah, when me and my wife, were, before we were married, we had a baby. We, we got married, but there was a miscarriage. And so we've never really wanted to discuss it with anybody. But, you know, we've wondered what she would have been like today if she were alive, if she were alive. And so within a few hours, those guys took a title, There Goes My Life, which been which had been in his mind for the longest time. And they wrote that song. And so it came, the song sprung from miscarriage and yet gave all the people in this country who ever decided to keep their child despite the fact that there was great uncertainty or they weren't ready. And by the way, whoever is ready for a child, (laughs) right? right? You're almost never ready. And that's why the people connect to this song because someone chose life and it's not an abortion song. It's not a pro-life song. It's a human song about a human choice that was beautiful. And and we love to celebrate the beautiful because there's, there's not enough beauty in our lives. And, and we respond to it. It's particularly a rugged beauty because they weren't married right? They weren't married. So that's the rugged part of the beauty. And yet they did the right thing. They raised that child. They got married. And it was the it was the source of love in their life. He was to go on and have more kids. and and But always lamenting, what would that miscarriage, what would have happened to that, that child if, if, if that child had been born? So it's been a fascinating visit with with Lee Habib. Uh, You can find out more by going to OurAmericanStories.com. Thank you, Lee, and thanks to each each and every one of you who have joined us on this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast.